Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I do enjoy life. This is, this is what I enjoy. You know, people say, oh, you must be fed up now. You've been doing it so long. <clears throat> I get more and more interested in it. You know, I think what I know makes me, what I'm doing now even more interesting. I just love what I do. That's really the answer. I love writing songs. I still think it's a kind of magical thing. I still can't believe it. You know, I sit down and there's a song. I go, wow. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Welcome back to Take It Away complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Today's episode is on the album Memory Almost Full. Chris, how do you feel about this album? I feel mixed about this album. Mm. I was very enthusiastic about it when it first came out. Upon review, mixed. There's some stuff on here that I think is really strong and some really, really good moments, but I also think that there are some duds. Interesting that you say the word mixed as well. We've discussed this, maybe some problems with the sound, at least of the original release of the record. Yeah, the original CD for sure, yeah. Yeah. Now, I haven't listened to it on iTunes or Spotify or anything, so I haven't double-checked that. But I will post, both on the Facebook page and on the website, a little graphic that shows a waveform of the LP versus the CD, and as you can see in that graphic, the original CD was really, really brick-walled. And by brick-walled, we mean that the dynamic range has been almost completely removed, and everything's sort of loud all the time. You don't get the usual crests and troughs in no. the waveforms. Instead, the troughs are way up close to the crests. So it, it makes it very fatiguing to listen to. And this was a trend. A lot of our listeners already know about the loudness wars. But this was a trend starting in the late 90s and going into the 2000s where everybody was trying to squash their stuff more than the next guy so that theoretically their stuff would pop out Mm -hmm. or be louder than the next guy's. Definitely be louder than the noise in your car or the noise outside of your headphones or whatever. And it just got out of control. And I think there's movement away from that now. It does seem that eventually record companies began to get the message that at least for certain music, it's inappropriate. Yeah. I don't know what your experience is, Ryan, of listening to this album. Is it abrasive? Right around this time, there were a bunch of albums that I just, there was like a big fan backlash from, I remember. I mean, just off the top, I remember the Ben Folds album that came out in 2008. Great album. Everybody was just so upset about that. There's a whole series of them, if you, if you dig in on this online. And it wasn't just new albums. This album was mastered by Bob Ludwig, and 
He's a mastering engineer who's been around for a long time, one of the most famous mastering engineers. Yeah. We'll come back to Bob Ludwig in a second. But another famous mastering engineer is Bernie Grunman. And he actually mastered a lot of very classic early CDs. So he mastered the original Off the Wall by Michael Jackson, the original Thriller CD. And I've got those original CDs. And I also have the 2001 Special Edition CDs. And those also were mastered by Bernie Grunman. Mm -hmm. Well, all I can tell you is that the original CDs sound beautiful. They are absolutely top of the line early CDs. And those 2001 CDs, they sound like like they in, intend these songs to be played in a dance club or something. Like right. they're supposed to compete with the loudest loud music of today. So it's completely period inappropriate, if I could put it that way. Sure. It's inappropriate to the kind of music, you know? Mm-hmm. They were still trying to figure out like what became mastering for iTunes and, and different things like that. Yeah, I, I think for the most part, it's gone now. It definitely has settled down and... Things are still often much louder than I'd like them to be. I just recently picked up an album by a band I really like, Lake Street Dive, Mm -hmm. and it's really loud. I'm sure that if you were to buy the LP, the LP would sound reasonable. And that's a point I wanted to make about Memory Almost Full. If you're lucky enough to own the original LP of that, or you can find it somewhere, that actually is reasonable. It doesn't have all this... All of this brick walling we've been hmm. talking about that makes it so abrasive on the CD. Definitely. I remember you sending me just like a a picture of the mastering. And it really is. It's just a, it's a brick. It's just a big brick. Yeah. It is fatiguing after a while. It's hard to listen to for sure. There are some mysteries about this problem too, because supposedly people reached out to Bob Ludwig and Bob Ludwig said, no, I, I pretty much mastered it the way they wanted me to master it. And I've heard a few different versions of this story. Hmm. But the LP is actually mastered also by Bob Ludwig. Or anyway, that's the credit on the LP. Maybe it was mastered by someone else. But the waveform that you see on the LP and the sound that you get on the LP is proof positive that somewhere in the chain, somewhere in the production chain, there was a version that was not brick walled. Right. It can't be brick-walled, by the way, on an LP. That's the reason that you buy LPs of things that were sourced digitally, even though that sounds like a silly idea. (laughs) You know, it's like, why are you buying an analog version of a digital thing? Well, the reason is that it has to be mastered differently for an LP. You can't brick-wall it. You can't smiley face EQ it, bump up the bass, bump up the treble. Mm -hmm. It'll distort. It'll bump the needle off the record in some cases. And it'll sound terrible. So you have to behave yourself when you do vinyl mastering. So really, you find that you're suffering ear fatigue from a brick-walled CD. If you have a record player, look up the LP. It might sound better. That's a good hack for sure. Well, all of the album examples in this episode come from my LP. So hopefully that'll be a little easier on everyone's ears. But really quickly, I'll do a little A-B between the LP and the original CD. I'll keep them at the exact same level so you can hear the difference. First the LP, then the CD. That was me at the scout camp in the school play Spade and bucket by the sea That was me That was me playing conkers at the bus stop on a blanket in the bluebells 
but that was me The same me that stands in now And when I think that all this stuff can make a life It's pretty hard to take it in That was me Well that was me Royal Iris on the river Mercy beaten with the band Yeah, so this is, we're coming off hot off of Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. It's a great collection of songs. Maybe part of this is, this album was started in 2003, picked up again in 2004, and then finished off March 2006 to February 2007. And wait, how many studios is this here? Five. (laughs) Abbey Road. Henson, R.A.K., Hog Hill, which is Paul's studio, A.I.R. Studios. Yeah, so this is an album that was recorded all over the place over a pretty big span of time with a whole album in between. Well, it's better than Driving Rain, I'll say that. Holds up pretty well and has some, as I said, some really high high points. So you have some high, high points, some... Some middle points, some low points. But you have a pretty consistent late career Paul McCartney album. Now, this was, this is interesting that this was the first release on Starbucks's Hear Music label. So, Paul, not on Capitol for this record. I just remember going into every Starbucks when this thing was out, and it was everywhere. The whole release campaign with Ever Present Past first. Yeah. I was in school at this point. I remember talking to you about this live. Do you remember that? (laughs) Yes, definitely. Well, I got a hold of a link. Maybe you sent it to me, a link to Ever Present Past. Mm -hmm. And I remember the website because it had like a little cassette, like a little worn out cassette. I can't remember if the reels were turning or not, but I do remember (laughs) the little cassette image and you hit play. And this very loud sounding Paul McCartney song came out, but I was really excited about it. And I remember you and I emailing about it that morning and then talking about it later in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to think back to that and to think back to us here now, finally covering this album in this long series of podcasts that we've done. Yeah. All the hours in. So, well, it's the first Paul McCartney album that came out after we'd met. That's right. So after we'd had our whole McCartney, you know, fest together, this was the first new one. And so, yeah, this song came out in advance of the album, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And we were both super excited about this song. I remember that somehow I ran off a copy from that website. Mm-hmm. I think I had a DAP machine or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I ran off a copy so I could set it up and listen to it in the car. So I remember listening to it repeatedly in the car and thinking, Wow. Nice, high-energy Paul McCartney song. This is great. Yes. That April 20th, 2007 is when this came out. First single off the record of the three singles that we'll get into. Dance Tonight come, being the second, June 18th, 2007, and Nod Your Head, which was August 28th, 2007. The album itself released June 4th, 2007, everywhere. This record reached the top five in both the UK and the US as well as Denmark, Sweden, Greece, and others. It was Grammy-nominated 
and it sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Certified gold in the U.S. So just like Chaos and Creation, sold a lot of copies, RIAA and, uh, and otherwise certified. A success, I would say. Yeah. Well, I certainly remember it being everywhere when it came out. And I know that the poor Starbucks employees were driven crazy by it. <laughs> that's probably why I remember it being everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, your Starbucks addiction, that's right. Well, there was one on the way to the train, yeah. And so I remember stopping by there and you know, hearing Paul McCartney and seeing <laughs> the album propped up everywhere. And didn't they do a whole day of playing the album nonstop yeah. in Starbucks? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's brutal. <laughs> I feel bad for those employees. Right. <laughs> Here and see your sunshine for the 19th time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I like an album, any album, enough yeah. to, you know, be subjected to that. So a little background on this. So nine demos were recorded at Paul's place in September 2003 by Paul and the touring band. Now, not all of those recordings made it onto the album, but, you know, we'll get into that in a bit. And about a month later in October of that year, the album sessions began at Abbey Road. They recorded You Tell Me, Vintage Clothes, Only Mama Knows, That Was Me, Feet in the Clouds, House of Wax, the end of the end and then whole life and we had discussed that in the last episode but for whatever reason and I don't know if you know because I certainly don't know these sessions were halted and then Nigel's brought in for chaos so it's interesting we're talking here about a period from October 2003 to February 2004 where Paul McCartney and the band were recording this album uh huh and when McCartney resumes work on this album, a couple years later, after finishing Chaos, hmm. he actually pretty much continues in the vein of Chaos at that point. If you listen to the album closely, you can hear there are two albums in here. There's right. an album with the band, and then this other thing, somewhat more eccentric thing, that he did later after Chaos. Interesting that he just continued right on with that play every instrument himself mode after the Nigel Godrich sessions. Again, I'm always so surprised when it's like, oh wait, that was a whole Paul solo record. Oh, quite a bit of this was. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but I think it's at least half. Yeah, it's, I think, a little over half, yeah. I actually have a quote from Paul about this period. It says, I actually started this album, Memory Almost Full, before my last album, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, released September 2005. When I was just finishing up everything concerned with Chaos and had just got the Grammy nominations, I realized I had this album to go back and finish off, so I got it out to listen to it again, wondering if I would enjoy it. But actually, I really loved it. All I did at first was just listen to a couple of things, and then I began to think, okay, I like that track, now what is wrong with it? And it might be something like a drum sound, so then I would re-drum and see where we would get to. So he dug this thing up, liked it, and he put it out, finished it. I yeah. don't think that happens all the time with him. 
It's a bit like the old days, right? When he would have tracks brewing that didn't make it onto one album, but then did make it onto the next. Mm -hmm. Thinking of the Ram tracks that show up on Red Rose Speedway, things like that. Right. It's But it's a kind of big version of that, where he had a whole group of sessions and recorded a whole set of songs, went back to another project, comes back to this. Yeah, it's, it is kind of different. Yeah, and so I guess around... 20 to 25 songs were recorded. So to your point about Ram, remember the Ram demo tape we were talking about way back when? Right. It's kind of, he's working with a whole batch of songs. Now that's a normal, I mean, that's normal, but Paul doesn't do that all the time. He's like, well, these are the, my 16 songs and that's it. I'm still back and forth as we're sitting recording right here. Like, wait, is this good? Because I remember when this thing came out, it was, it blew me away. At least the A side, it just knocked me off my feet. Yeah, me too. But the more I think back on it, the more I remember myself playing through the A side a lot. Mm. And thinking that the the B side was something I'd get back to at some point. A lot of these tracks were rejected from chaos, right? Or a few of them. A few of them, yeah. Which makes some sense. I can see how something like Ever Present Past wouldn't have appealed to Godrich. Right. What was the list of songs I just said at the top of the show? I guarantee he brought those to Godrich. I was like, well, what do you think of Only Mama Knows? And I bet he was like, nope, (laughs) get this the hell out (laughs) of here, away from me. Anyway, that's all just conjecture. So we're back with David Kahn, and it's interesting Driving Rain, we say it's not that great. Didn't seem to make much of a a dent commercially and maybe decent reviews. But he goes back to that producer. That's sort of interesting. Sort of strange. It is strange. Maybe McCartney doesn't perceive Driving Rain as a, a failure. Maybe he likes that one. Definitely possible. Well, he also produced Back in the U.S., Back in the World Live. And he's done like a bunch of other things. That Instant Karma, the Amnesty International Campaign to Save Darfur album. Maybe he's just fun to work with. Pleasant and fun to work with. Simple as that. He does seem very positive in interviews. Very positive. Yeah, look at Paul McCartney in Red Square. There's a lot of things he's worked on for Paul since then. Now, what about Andy Wallace? So Andy Wallace engineers this album. He's a mixing, or at least he's a mixing engineer. On the actual album credits, it's mixed by David Kahn and Andy Wallace. I noticed at one point in one of the interviews, Paul slips and refers to the producer Andy, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Andy Wallace is not listed as a producer on this album. But it's worth noting that if you look at his discography, you see quite a few producer credits, at least 
back before about 2000. After that, he's mostly listed as a mixing engineer. Maybe he's just in great demand as a mixing engineer. Andy Wallace did Ben Folds 5's Whatever and Ever Amen. Love that yeah. record. Yeah, a lot of really successful records from the late 80s to almost to today. Yeah. Guys constantly working. But not very often as a producer, mostly here as a mixing engineer. Right. Yeah, Foo Fighters, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Linkin Park, to Natalie Imbruglia. He's all over the place. A lot of heavy rock in the early 2000s, Stained, Corn, Thrice. But then if you look back in like the 80s, he's doing Run DMC records or yeah. Slayer. As producer. Right. Right. Africa Bambata, mixing engineer. Mm-hmm. Slayer, The Cult, The Godfathers, producer on Slayer, producer on the Rollins Band. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of stuff. So you never know who really has the influence over what when you are listening back to records. I think that this combination of players and producers and mixers is great. So some people mention that the album's title... Memory Almost Full is an anagram for my soulmate LLM. So that's Linda's initials, Linda Louise McCartney. Now, Paul was asked in interviews if this was intentional, and he replied, (laughs) I love this. Some things are best left a mystery. (laughs) There is another interview where he says, no, of course not. Yeah. It's cool that it came out that way, though. He says, very interesting, but... Yeah, that that was from the Pitchfork Media interview. He said it was not intentional. It's just from a message he saw on his phone. He thought the phrase summed up modern life. Memory almost full. I think it's a great title. Yeah, that's how it feels sometimes doing this podcast. Like, I can't cram much more McCartney-related right. material in. How much more can I put into my eyes and ears? Well, you can come on to my place if you want to. You can do anything you want to do. Everybody gonna dance tonight. Everybody gonna feel alright. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. Track one, side one, dance tonight. So Paul has this quote, I was in London and I was on my way into a meeting, but before I actually got there, I had a bit of a walk to experience life for a minute. There's a guitar shop that I always drop in on, and I was chatting to the guy in there. He mentioned that he had a left-handed mandolin that he wanted to show me. The great thing about it was that I didn't know how to play. It's tuned like a violin, so I had no idea what the chords were. Buys the thing, and then he goes on. I started stomping in the kitchen, just enjoying myself, trying to find chords. I started singing, everybody gonna dance tonight. Every time my little girl would come running in and start dancing, the song wrote itself. And it really does sound like it d- did, doesn't it? In a bad way, I would, I would say. Okay, in a bad I don't way. Know. What, what do you think of this one? I take this as a Ramon-style mm-hmm. song. It yeah. is... Charming and small, 
It is not meant to be a, a big statement. And for that, it's great. To that, I'd say fair enough. It always felt to me as if I'm waiting to start the album. I do tend to play this as, as the LP. I often listen to albums the whole way through, even with the tracks I don't like. And so this song always makes me feel like, it, you know, it's, it's a big preface. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of waiting for the album to actually get started. Sonically, it's very beautiful. And it's worth listening to the instrumental track by itself. Because it really is a cool record. I'll grant it that. And a s- solo, a Paul solo. Yes, it really sounds very live and, well, we'll say this again and again as we have before, but like a big ensemble, it really does. Mm -hmm. He's stomping on a piece of wood there. On a piece of wood. Yeah, and he mentions they used air conditioner grates as well. Maybe just played played the metal. Pulled up all the grids and stuck it on the box, and he's just playing. I like the keyboards, the guitar tones. The guitar tones on the whole album are excellent. It's a well-engineered and well-mixed album. Hmm. It's a pleasant listen. Maybe it's not mastered in the best way, but it's cool. An anecdote, I guess, a personal anecdote. I saw Paul 2011 play Yankee Stadium when I was living in New York. And for the most part, when you go see a Paul McCartney show, and I'm going to get roasted for this, Sometimes you feel like you're seeing a Beatles cover band. You know, things are dialed in and it's all very perfect and nice. And you're hearing the song and, and yep, that's Paul. This is, you kind of lose yourself in the song because it's being played so well. When he played this song and when he played Let Him In, for whatever reason, he got a little loose, like on this song in particular. And he was playing with the melody and kind of just screwing around with it a little bit more. It felt more of an improv than like a straight performance. And it like struck me between the eyes. I'm like, wait, that's Paul McCartney. <laughs> that's the same guy hmm. that did Ram. And I, <laughs> I had like this, I had the same sensation because he was just improvising on the melody lines when he was holding some of the longer notes out. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, yeah, that's the guy. So maybe that's why I like this song particularly. It just reminds me of that. Well, if I'm listening to it mainly for its instrumentation and its recording qualities, then it succeeds there. But the lyrics are goofy to non-existent, right? And the tune is pretty close to non-existent. The chords are simple. So if it really were like Ramon and a minute and a half with some better lyrics or, I don't know, different lyrics... I might like it more, but as it is, I'm just waiting a while for the album to start. Mm. Cool video. Yeah. That would that the Natalie Portman. Yeah. With Gondry doing the, the visuals. I think he's got glass set up and he's got the camera zoomed way in so that he can set people up and get their reflections against the glass as things are happening behind the glass. Mm. Because, you know, he's the guy who specializes in doing everything as like practical techniques and oh, like, borderline magic tricks in front of the camera. Yeah. Yeah. That's a special video. You should check that out. Funny too. Like a real sense of humor. There's a lot of little moments in this record where it feels like wings or like early Paul. But I don't think intentionally. It's just relaxed. There's a relaxed nature to the record. I do think throughout this album, we hear 
echoes of wings that we haven't we really haven't heard that in Paul's work for a while at this point. Just a willingness to be goofy, a willingness to try something a little off the wall. It's nice to hear that mm-hmm. come back. I've got too much on my plate. Don't have no time to be a decent lover. I hope it isn't too late. Searching for the time that has gone so fast. The time that I thought would last. My ever-present past. I've got too much on my mind. I think of everything to be discovered. There's something to find Searching through the time that has gone so fast The time that I thought would last My ever-present past mm-hmm. The things I think I did I do, I think I did but The things I think I did When I was a kid The next track ever present past so in the uk this song actually hit 85 this was a bit of a charter for paul as we said in the last episode this was intended for chaos in a folksy arrangement but godrich killed it and paul goes to say sometimes i just sit down and try to write a pop song something catchy that might be attractive it starts off I've got too much time on my plate. The way I write, I just follow that thought and think, what did I mean by that? Explain yourself. After I'd got the verse, the idea of my past came about. And in the studio, they changed it from an acoustic guitar sort of thing to more of a keyboard, electric guitar, piano thing. I noticed that in the actual interview, in the actual audio of the interview, he says something that might be attractive as a hit or on the radio. Mm Mm-hmm. So he is thinking about tune smithing and getting a hit. Sort of the old let's write a swimming pool thing. Yes. Well, he's good at that. He's the best at that. (laughs) And uh, this is quite a good song. It's a great song. One of my favorite Paul McCartney lyrics. Whole career. Searching for the time that has gone so fast. The time that I thought would last. My ever-present past. I think of everything to be discovered. I hope there's something to find. So this guy later in his life, is still searching for the news, searching for creativity. One of my favorites is, I D-I-D, I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the way that's printed in the lyric sheet is D period, I period, D period, I period, did. But I always heard it as just spelling out D-I-D, the word did. I D-I-D, I did. That's how I heard it. Yeah, me too. I don't know. The lyrics printed a bit differently. The lyrics have it as, as if they're referring to DI boxes or something. Right. No, I, he's spelling out the phrase. He's like really spelling yeah. it out. I did. Yeah. I did it. I-D-I-D. Yeah. And that's like a whole theme of this whole record. He's looking back. We'll get there and that was me. And well, Yep, I lived this life. Check me out. Kind of sentiment. Interesting record with these really compressed guitars. I think it sounds great. Yeah, it's cool. I like the bouncing back and forth with the guitars. Mm-hmm. That's nice. So I guess they recorded it to a loop, like a drum loop, that guitar track, and then Paul went in and played drums to the song. 
They added more guitars and bass, and he sang it. And Khan saying, the mystery is not where or what Paul was referencing. The mystery is where do his ideas flow from inside of himself? Yeah, I could hear this as a, a folksier song. I would love to hear that. It's not hard to envision, yeah. It has an old-timey feel in places, and the fact that it's sort of thinking back, mm-hmm. can't help but think that that does make some sense. But I, I like this little slick pop record they made out of it. I much prefer that we have this version than some kind of chaos and creationized version of it. Although, with Godrich, it would be a menacing I-D-I-D-I-D. <laughs> this one has a cool music video, too. Not as good as Dance Tonight, but a bit right. of like a nod to Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. It's a fun video. They had Paul just do some impromptu moves, and then they analyzed the video of him doing his moves and choreographed the girls around him so that they would appear all to be in sync. <laughs> that works pretty well. It's cool. Yeah. As soon as you start watching it, you have the feeling something's wrong. You, you kind of think, well, this would take a lot of choreography on Paul's part to memorize all these moves. Right. And do them perfectly. <laughs> so you immediately start, the gears start turning like, what's going on here? This is, is this one of those coming up type deals? Yeah. And it is. Kind of cool that he's still making music videos at this point in his career, because he certainly doesn't have to. And he doesn't always turn in the coolest music videos, but... Yeah, but this time they're at least classy. Yes, yeah. Everything surrounding this project feels classy, and I'd said earlier in this... No, it wasn't even this season. It would have been last season. That after Flaming Pie, Driving Rain kind of begins this... This last phase, well, I don't want to say last phase, but the phase we're in where he's putting out things like Egypt Station and this album and even parts of New. He really is kind of just shrugging off the past and reinventing himself. And I don't think he gets a lot of credit for that. So that brings us to track three, Seer Sunshine. Pretty cheerful song, as the title implies. What do you think of this one? I like that it was written about a good time with Heather. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, like, I don't want to deny that. I didn't want to take out anything about her just because of what was going on in his personal life. Another song rejected by Godrich. Totally understand why. Mm, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. This is one of the ones. Yeah. Totally understand how this wouldn't be a Godrich. Yeah, the lyric doesn't say a whole lot. It's just a, hey... No, it's a goofy lyric, yeah. Sunshine, step out in front of me thing. What the big story behind the song is just the bass guitar part. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I didn't know this story until just when I started doing the research for this. Right. And I don't just always thought of it as a super cool part, but I guess Paul thought of it as, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be ridiculous. I'm going to do an over-the-top ridiculous part for the heck of it. And they ended up liking that. Yeah, they did two takes and just comped together the best parts of both of those takes. Speaks to how great he is as a bass guitarist. I'm excited to hear that performance because a lot of that cool bass guitar stuff from Wings and the Beatles, are it's missing in this solo career. Mm-hmm. After like Good Night Tonight, hmm. can you name a bass line like this? And this one's not singable. This is more like postmodern and ridiculous. I can't think of something where I'm like, oh, yeah, that one was sick bass part, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He hasn't really been turning out the melodic bass lines as much. Yeah. Re- Maybe that's what I've been missing in some of those later Paul Yeah, stuff. me too. <laughs> Maybe I'm just realizing that. I really like the song, and I like the whole record, actually. I don't like the lyrics, but it's one of these cases where the song is so so charming and it just sort of wins you over good vocals too i like the the stacked background harmonies on this a lot mm-hmm. and the lead vocal is convincing as well yeah really well done like i had said earlier the that middle section that b section the lift that's nice a harpsichord comes in that mm-hmm. in that part he really loves the harpsichord doesn't he <laughs> just there's a good amount of harpsichord and spinet and clavinet type stuff on this album yeah you have a wild bass guitar part that really contrasts like uh, the song in an amazing way. And it, it really lifts it up above what it would have been if it was just a simple bass line. Who knows? Maybe if Paul had played that wacky bass part, Godwin should have been like, yep, we love this. Keep it in. She picks up daisies from the field. She loves to weave them in her hair. I know she knows it isn't real. She still hears music in the air. Next track, track four, Only Mama Knows. First track recorded for the album, at Abbey Road, and according to the producer, really has the Abbey Road sound. Yeah, it's a really good live band rock song. I like it a lot. It's got a lot of girls' school, Junior's Farm, Soily, a lot of that old Wings vibe, rock vibe coming back. I like it. You got Paul, Rusty, Abe, Wicks, and Brian in the room together. Khan says, you can hear the Abbey Road room sound, a big room with a close feel. This thing was nominated in 2008 
for Best Solo Rock Vocal Performance. That's a Grammy Award. So I was thinking this when I was listening, and I want to softball this one to you. I think that this song is about wings. Hmm. And I understand it's the whole mama laid him down and it's like a baby or whatever, or like a yeah, child getting lost. Child. I hate sounding like a conspiracy theorist or some guy that's like <laughs> making up shit. But I'm thinking like mama laid me down in this godforsaken town. We were running to what we ran from. I never knew. I get images of Paul being in wings in the, in those early days of wings hmm. going from town to town in that bus with his new wife laying down his mama in a new town and on the run and, and he's on, on the, the run, run kind of thing. He, right. Cause he's saying like, Oh, I don't know what the story's about. I think it's just about wings. It's as simple as that. He's got a nice little turn in the vocal at that part. You're talking about where she was running to what she ran from though. I always wondered I never knew the way he sings that, though I always wondered. It's kind of cool. Yes, really cool. Lures it together, yeah. Cool singing. Oh, yeah, really cool singing on this. Back to some Run, Devil, Run type stuff here. Yeah, I wish he did this a little bit more. Like this one, I remember when the album came out, thinking that this one really cooked. But I always have that moment after I get a new Paul McCartney album, because I listen to so much music, and I know you do too, where there's that like honeymoon period with a McCartney album, and you're like, yes. <laughs> this is great. And then you go back. You're like, well, no, it's not. And this is one of the ones that is actually still great. I think it's a solid song. I think it's a bit of a waste of the whole orchestra thing, though. Yeah, well, it turns out it's only partly real strings. It's A lot of it is synthesizer strings at the beginning. Okay. And then they laid a violin solo on top and a few additional sort of reinforcement strings. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned he was trying to do like a Philip Glass type thing there. It, it kind of comes off that way. Oh, is that right? I didn't even catch that. Yeah. You know, we played the ending of the late great Johnny Ace, the Paul Simon song on the show a while back. Mm -hmm. And that ends with a little Philip Glass coda. I don't know if he was consciously going for the Paul Simon idea, but it, it's a bit like that of kind of bookending the song with the little right. Philip Glassy, simple string thing. Right, right, right. Oh, and by the way, as far as I can tell, maybe someone will write in and tell us, but I can't find any credits for the string players and, and various orchestral instrument players. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Not sure what's up with that, because there are some real strings. There's a clarinet player. There's some horns at one point. Only Mama Knows, great track, and that leads us right into another full band record, You Tell Me. Summer when the skies were blue 
The bright red cardinal flew down from his tree You tell me When was that summer when it never rained? Yeah Yeah, I'm down with this one. I think the vocal is a bit rough, That's but true. I think it's very beautiful tune. Yeah, it's another vacation song, right? Long Island? Written during a summer visit in Long Island. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as overtly mm, Latin sounding as something like a certain softness, but I hear it as being melodically a little bit in that vein. Yeah. I like that vein, so he can bring that back whenever he wants as far as I'm concerned, but... Yeah, I like this one. This one could have easily been on KSN Creation. It kind of fits right into the template of what was going on, like you just said. Yeah, another vacation song, I'm on vacation. And he, the quote I pulled, I started off just remembering summers. For a lot of people, your memories, particularly childhood memories, they seem so golden. Did it really never rain all summer, or am I just imagining the sunny bits? And I guess he's talking about the red cardinal, that's an American bird. So for somebody English, like some red cardinal landed when he was writing, he's like, oh, I'll have you. I'll take you. I'll put you in my little song. Whimsical yeah. little thing. What do you think about the title and the refrain of You Tell Me? Does that, what does that suggest to you? I actually really like the title. I, it, to me, it's like, um, why don't you tell me what this is about? Right. O- almost aggressive well, in a way. That's right. Okay, I'm glad you say that. Because McCartney doesn't refer to that at all in interviews about this song. But my interpretation of this song, and I guess it maybe it's a misinterpretation, but my interpretation was that this was about good times he'd spent with Heather mm. and a kind of, what happened? Well, you tell me what happened. Wow. Kind of sarcastic. But he doesn't refer to anything like that in the interviews, so maybe I've got it wrong. Or maybe I've heard too many Elvis Costello songs and I just hear aggression where it doesn't I, exist. I don't but. know if you've heard enough Elvis <laughs> Costello songs. And to the point where were we there? Was it real? Is it truly how yeah. I feel? Maybe. Yeah, it does seem like maybe you're the one who knows what happened there. Because I thought I remembered it being pleasant. but That kicks yeah. this song way up further for me. <laughs> because it's always like, yeah, it's okay. Paul McCartney song. Okay. Next track, Mr. Bellamy comes on, and you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great interpretation. Well, he doesn't confirm it anywhere, so it's just my little version, I guess. I really like the line, when was that summer of a dozen words? Yeah, that's a great line. What a line. And there's a lot of these little lines where I'm glad we are revisiting these albums that I've, and I just missed. And you wonder how many songs you've heard a million times or albums you've heard half a dozen times you're like I admit I missed a whole bunch of information so <laughs> it's yeah. kind of cool where we're there say is it true was I really there with you let's see mm-hmm. you tell me 
So let's move on to track six, the last track of side A, Mr. Bellamy. based upon a piano riff we've been talking about this for a while like where are the Martha my dear type riff based Ah. Lady Madonna riff things where it's like actually creative and original I think this is one of those tunes yeah this is cool this is a cool little piano part I'm gonna jump right to it I was completely taken aback when I found out that he asked Tom York to play the piano but he turned it down Tom York apparently said, I only strum the piano. I can't play things where I have to do different things between the two hands. And this is not a hard piano part. No. (laughs) Nope. Nobody here disposes you. Interfere with my plans. Melanie's got a job to do. And he's hoping you'll understand. Steady lads. Don't frighten me Here we go Here we go I'm not coming down No matter what you do I like it up here without you So I guess there's a 1961 pop art painting by Liechtenstein. I didn't check it out, but I know that it's called Mr. Bellamy. So, you know, he could have pulled it. Like we've said before, He Paul always has his antenna out. So maybe it, it came from that, saw it somewhere. I think Paul just said that he thought of the name Bellamy. I think that's his entire explanation of where the name came from. Well, I thought Bellamy sounded like the sort of person who might be in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> This is one that I really did misinterpret when I first got to know the song. You know, we could say that my you tell me interpretation is mine to have, but I just plain got it wrong here. There's a line that proves that I got it wrong. Still, if you take that line out, my interpretation's really fun. I think other people came to this idea, which is that the song's about a damn cat in a tree, and the firemen are coming to get it down, and it wants to stay in the tree. Mm. I like it up here without you. I got stuff going on. Right. But it, there's a line in a delusionary state. 
He finds that he's been feeling strange of late, which wouldn't make any sense with a cat. But every other thing in the song could be the scenario I just described. So until I really looked at that line, which I did not long after after I thought of this, I saw that, oh, okay, it is wrong. But that's a very cat sentiment to me. I like it up here without you. (laughs) (laughs) The stupid firemen are going, don't scare him now, you know. Don't scare the cat. Easy, boys. That's not what McCartney says the song is about, by the way. He says it's about a man either on a ledge. Yes, some kind of businessman. He's, he, was, he was thinking about like a New York skyscraper, you know, thinking about jumping. And people want to tie it back into the Mills thing. And the police are trying to talk him down and yeah. sneak up on him and get him down. And yeah. So I guess the press noted that the title is an anagram for Mills Betray Me. And it's just like, are we really going into this territory right now? Two, three, seven. Right. It's just a song, you know? Well, it's an excellent song. Yeah. Really well done. I like this one a lot. Always did. Good replay value. And it's a Paul Solo record. What's not to like? Yeah. It's got that cool little outro, too. Come down, come down, come back to me. Yes. Yeah. So I take that as the guy jumped. And that's just him falling in slow motion to his death. But maybe that's just my twisted brain. Okay. I took it to be more of a happy ending, but I like your version. <laughs> I'm going to adopt your version. Yes. I took it to be like his wife or a loved one's, you know, at the end, entreating him to come down. I mean, that's probably what it is. But, you know, I'm riding such a high from the rest of this record. I want the twisted, dark ending. Sorry to... been listening to too much Elvis Costello, man. Again, not enough, perhaps. That leads us to the top of the B-side, Gratitude. How do you feel about this particular song? You know, I almost get the feeling this is in a supposed-to-hate category, but I don't hate it. I think it's okay. I see it as a kind of, oh, darling, call me back again type thing. Maybe like a less clever cousin of Souvenir Something like that. A less clever cousin of Souvenir. I never thought of that. That's hilarious. I think the lyrics are a little weak. I don't know. What do you think? Well, he says he's doing his little Richard thing. Mm -hmm. And Paul always is talking about, you know, I have multiple voices. I've got the Elvis ballad voice, which I never really thought he sounded anything like Elvis. And then... That's right. And he's doing that Marvin Gaye, Prince thing of kind of mixing up sexuality and lust with... um, kind of religious or gospel vibes. Yes. It's a Paul Solo record, and it is. It's in the Oh Darling, Call Me Back Again, Souvenir, Diet Souvenir, that McCartney heuristic, that shortcut, that's the vein we're in. And I guess in the studio, they're talking about how, you know, I saw Paul do this song over and over and over again, and it it really came to life in the studio, that gritty voice. He just, he's just older, so it's not the same experience for me. Sure. When you listen to Call Me Back Again, and he's in that third or fourth time around, and he's just letting it go, you're like, what? How can someone sing like this? Well, he's approaching 65 at the time of this album. Right, and again, look, not faulting the guy. 
just if I can listen to Call Me Back Again, or this, I'm going to listen to Call Me Back Again. It's just a preference. Okay. Yeah, right, sure. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. I'm so grateful for everything you've ever given me. I guess I want to ask you if this interrupts the, the flow of the album for you at all. Are we still on a good flow with this album for you? I'm or? still in a good flow, though. That's the thing. Okay, that's, okay. That's, that's what I'm asking, yeah. That's one of the best parts about this album is you're still chugging along, and you're like, wow, I haven't really had a, heard a bad song. I like the double-track stacked harmonies on this track. Yeah. Gratitude, gratitude at the beginning. That's nice. Really, really nice. And I thought this was the band. This is a more... Of an example of where you're like, wait, is it Paul's yeah. touring band or is it just Paul? And it sounds like a band. Yeah. Once again, he's really mastered the art of going into a studio by himself and churning out something that really has ensemble. That's not easy. It takes a lot of practice or it just takes a lot of experience. Yeah. There is this quote from David Kahn. As we worked on the vocals more and more, Paul took more and more chances and it kept getting better and better. It was like watching a flower bloom, actually. This is the one you were right. talking about yes. earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Does it sound like a flower blooming to you? I understand, <laughs> I understand what he's talking about from the perspective of a record producer. <laughs> The next track, the second track on the B-side, or the eighth of the album, opens up another song suite. And Paul had said, well, I want to do this because nobody's doing it and I haven't done it in a while. Yeah, except it's not like the old ones he used to do. No, nope. It doesn't weave everything together. It really just has clever little transitions between the songs. Right. Besides that, it's not really doing anything to, to wrap it all up. Yeah, and so in this one, Vintage Clothes, it's about Paul's clothes from the 60s. And he has a quote, I meet quite a few young guys in bands, and a question they always ask is, did you keep the clothes? And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. And I guess the point is, like in music, trends change in fashion, but they always come back. And I would add to that that the trends actually come back faster and the cycle goes faster and faster and faster. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like just in the past few years, as I've heard the 70s are back, like every two or three years, you're like, wait, what do you mean they're back? They've <laughs> I feel like they haven't left since the internet age hit. Don't live in the past, 
Don't hold on to something that's changing fast What we are is what we are And what we wear is vintage clothes He says it's a forward-looking song and that the vintage clothes reference is meant to be, you know, about the recycling of trends. And But there is a vintage feel to the song. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have really... I mean, we'll see as we, we go through this. I don't really have any complaints about the next few tracks and how they kind of hang together. Aside from the fact, like what you just said, it's not a song suite like the second half of Abbey Road. Or even, or for that matter, Red Rose Speedway. Red Rose Speedway. Right? Where that, I mean, that's like a clunkier version of the same thing. But I still love that. I I love putting that on every once and again. I mean, to the point about this being vintage, he's got those little Mellotron things happening all over the place. Those right. are really cool. Really cool little riffs. and yeah, and he's going for some guitar sounds that are kind of retro too. So, Khan says I like some of the electric guitar sounds because it's evocative of the sound they achieved at Abbey Road on Sgt. Pepper's reprise. Yeah, there you go. Could be. I mean, this was recorded at Abbey Road partly too. Hey, yeah, I mean, (laughs) the guitars (laughs) sound like they were recorded at Abbey Road. They sound like Abbey Road. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're getting real loose in this episode, but I'm just so sick of Abbey Road and hearing about Abbey Road and this record and comparing this to that and this. Who cares? Let him make something new. I think, and I know you don't love this album, and yes, I'm going back to McCartney too, but the reason I like McCartney too is not necessarily because it hangs together as a record so great, but he's just doing something new. Yeah. Well, I, I've always granted McCartney too that much. And seen in perspective, yeah, McCartney too is a real out there personal experiment. Yeah, absolutely. Still, this is the point at which the album takes some kind of a turn though, right? Well, yeah. Well, this, then... this song's all right, but this suite, as it goes on, things go downhill a bit, in my mind. So you're going, you're talking about the next track, track nine, they swing into That Was Me. That Was Me, yeah. Don't love this one. Okay, so. Strange thing. It, I mean, musically, it's one of the simplest songs on the album, which it's sort of straight rock and roll. Interestingly, though, the lyrics maybe are some of the best on the album, to me, because the way he's stringing together his memories there, it comes off as a little bit fragmented and surreal. In the cellar, we know what that means, but also if you just back away from it, it's kind of a cool series of, of surreal, disconnected images. So I think it's kind of a fun song, lyrically. Great set of lyrics. But here we're kind of settling into some regular rock song type stuff here. Yeah, and maybe that's the point. Maybe it is. It's similar to that song, Summer 59. It's meant to be like an old skiffle kind of thing it doesn't sound anything like that it's like skiffle through the filter of 10 years ago of 2006 or 7 when they're making this record and i do like and khan mentions this that lift he has in the vocal near the end of the song Mm -hmm. yeah that's nice we're talking about needing a lift for the third verse after the vocal guitar solo riffs and paul said maybe he'd sing it up an octave and what's on the track is the second take, and his hair was standing on end. David Kahn. David Kahn is just obsessed with being in the studio with Paul. And <laughs> that was me, a cappella, at the altar, in the middle of the 
actually, I, I've never skipped this song. I let it play. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's got a high energy. I'd like to hear it live, and we, we do have that live from the Amoeba Records secret EP. Mm-hmm. Right. His live in Los Angeles record in 2009 got a Grammy Award nomination, Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. So there's some good here. Yeah. And what's the story? The, the wrong piano chord? Wick's messing around with chords and coming upon a nice dissonant chord there. I love the line, sweating cobwebs. I know that's a British oh, yeah. slang. It's like a really cool image. And I noticed this upon listening. So he says, that w- yeah, that was me. Sweating cobwebs under contract in the cellar on TV. That was me. And then later in the song, he says, that was me at the party. Sweating cobwebs in a cellar on TV. That was me. So I don't know if that little twist is me reading too far into it. Is him talking about his prison time? Maybe sneaking that in? Hmm. There are like a lot of little lyrical turns in this song that if you revisit, open up, like I said earlier. I just missed the first time around. Full band on this one. And then it segues into like, it slows down a bit and goes into feet in the clouds. Teacher said I had my head in the clouds They directed, I suspected Disconnected, had it my way On the street I had my feet on the ground Stood corrected, well protected Had it my way I've got my feet in the clouds Got my head on the ground I know that I'm not a square As long as they're not around But I find it very, 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 very hard Yes, I find it very, 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 very so this is a song about how his teachers were complete maniacs and he was in a dark and gloomy school and is affecting their attitudes. But young Paul McCartney is sitting there dreaming. His head and brain and thoughts are miles away in the clouds. Yeah, this one's okay. It's got that add six chord that expands up to a flat seven. So it goes from a, as Luca Parasi points out, kind of John Lennon-ish six chord to a more bluesy chord after that. It's another one that, you know, it falls a little flat for me. Yeah, this one, I'm going to agree with you, is where it starts to lose a little bit of steam, the record. Musically, this sounds like a really easy song for Paul to write. Yeah. And they're working on the acoustic guitar sound for a long time in the studio because there's no drums for a long time. So he's got this big, big old acoustic guitar sound. And Khan wanted it to feel like the guitar was holding the voice in his hand. So it, it sounded extremely close and personal. Yeah. I think this is a proto version of Confidant on Egypt Station. Oh. Hmm. 
It's like a similar vein. It's not exactly, it's definitely not one for one. Where he's looking back in his school days, but I think in Confidant, he really nails the emotional element of it. Yeah, Confidant's a more serious song. I mean, yeah, this song has robotic harmonies. Yeah, <laughs> which I, I do like that part. Unfortunately, this, this song has the, uh, and I find it very, 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 very hard part. Mm-hmm. And they really make the most of that in the robotic section. It works well for that in the robotic section, but it's a pretty lame lyric, right? I think it's Mark Twain. Somebody has an old saying that anytime you're tempted to use very, substitute damn and see how you like that. <laughs> that's amazing. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think that's a little weak. No, it's not great. I did not notice this. Check me on this if I'm wrong here. So he says, I know that I'm not a square as long as they're not around. But he's saying... I'm not a square, a square, they're not a round. So it's a, like L7 kind of square round. Right. He's playing with words. I thought that was clever. That's a fun pun, yeah, as long as they're not around. But then it's yeah. completely erased <laughs> by very, 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 very <laughs> you know. But yeah. is that the point? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. So our big suite here is coming thundering into House of Wax. Lightning, it's the house of wax Pour it spill out on the street To set a light The incomplete remainders of the future This, this is good stuff. This is great. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you go first. Well, I'll just say that what I like about it is that it makes me a bit nostalgic for Dear Friend. Unfortunately, I don't like Dear Friend very much. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> so, it's a similar kind of thing. It's just like the alternating between the two boring minor key chords and the the single note melody thing, it, it grates on me by the end of the song. Right. Hidden in the yard, underneath the wall, buried deep below a thousand layers, lie the answer to it all. I think that's fucking great. Yeah, there's some good lines in this song. And he does sing it really beautifully. Those high notes in the melody are right. actually yeah. sung really well. Paul plays the guitar solo, and I guess he only did yeah. it in about 30 minutes. And there are three drum kits, and one of them slowed down to half speed. Those like, they're like, yeah, 
those slowed down drums, that's a really great touch. That's really nice. Really menacing sounding. I mean, so what is the House of Wax meant to be about? Some kind of anti-war song or? I just don't know what it's about. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm complaining. I'm actually asking you, did you catch anything? It means the same thing as House of Cards, right? Right, right. Castle on the Sand, an easily toppled abode. Is Paul looking back on his life, plus 50, plus 60 years old, seeing his life or what his life has been as like a house of wax, like, oh, I've built all of this stuff. And then one day it's just going to melt away. Mm -hmm. Even though it won't, his family will make royalties until the end of time. Well, the song seems to suggest that someone's under attack, in a sense, that poets are fleeing and lightning is striking and bad times for people who hang around the house of wax. Mm. Yeah, it's a head scratcher. And it's rock and roll, so it it can be. But I enjoyed that one. I, I like that number. Really spooky for a Paul McCartney song. So we go on to the end of the end, which actually is not the end of the end, as we will find. So this is the 12th track on the record, the sixth on the B-side, recorded at Abbey Road in 2004. And so an Irish woman wished Paul well by saying, I wish you a good death. He's like, say what? And then I guess he came around and thought, well, you know, the Irish approach of a wake is celebratory. At the end of the end It's the start of a journey To a much better place And this wasn't bad So a much better place Would have to be special No need to be sad On the day that I die, I'd like jokes to be told And stories of old to be rolled out like carpets The children have played on and laid on While listening to stories of old At the end of the end, it's the start of a journey much better place and a much better place would have to be special no reason to cry it's good music i like the music a lot on this record yeah i'm I'm not crazy about it musically uh as a matter of fact it's it's a supposed to like i think for me aha sorry to invoke the dreaded supposed to like but I'm pretty sure I'm meant to like this, and it just doesn't work for me. It has some nice features. This is apparently the Lady Madonna piano he's playing here. Oh, yeah, I love that, right? Yeah, and that sounds really cool. And Mrs. Mills. the vocal is... Yeah, Mrs. Mills, how about that? It's an affecting vocal, but the song just falls a bit flat for me. It just doesn't... never quite has any lift in it. Even when it has a little key change, it doesn't quite have lift. 
I like that he was singing and playing the song live, and he had headphones oh, yeah. on, right? And after a few takes, he he's like, I don't need the headphones. About three takes later, he did the take you hear on the album. I yeah. think that's really, really cool. On the day that I die, I'd like jokes to be told and stories of old to be rolled out like carpets. So a much better place would have to be special. That, that last couplet? Of course it would. You were Paul McCartney on Earth. <laughs> Dying and going to a much better place would have to be insanely good, right? Well, there's an interview where he addresses the whole topic of the afterlife, actually. I'll play that here. This is from ABC News Nightline, recorded right around the time the album was released. It's a song about death, but it's not a sad song. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's... uh, I kind of surprised myself, I think, with that. You know, I was glad that it came out celebratory instead of kind of morbid. Do you believe that? Well, yeah, you know, it's... um, I don't know. Like, nobody knows for sure, even the Bishop of London. I think um, it's a great world. I think we screw it up, probably. So there's no reason for me to think that after it isn't fantastic, too. But it's a guess. So it's not just something we tell ourselves to feel better. It could be that, too. You know, like I say, it's a guess. I don't know. I think as a kid, I used to think that, definitely. I used to think, ah, that's what older people do when they get older. And (laughs) And now? (laughs) Now I'm older. So it could be true. But um, I mean, when you have kids, I think maybe you think about death in a different kind of way. You want to live long enough to make sure they're sturdy. Hmm. You have grown children who are sturdy, but you have a little one. Yeah. I mean, do you do the math and kind of say she's three and a half now and uh, I've got 20 more good years? I want to be around. I want to be around to pick up the pieces. So a lot of ambiguity there. Yeah. So because Paul didn't want to leave everybody on a bummer of a note, Track 13, or 7 on the back of the vinyl, is Nod Your Head, which is, for what I can tell, just a updated version of Night Out or something. Just a stompy rock song to let everybody mm. off the hook so they weren't gloomily thinking about death. Well, Night Out's really, really cool, though. This is really more just like a jam, huh? Yeah, it was a jam that he ended up putting a vocal on. Yeah. Pretty deep lyrics on this one, huh? In the next couple of songs, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up this point. <laughs> Is this the proto? Come on to me. Oh God. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Could be. That's where we're at now in our podcast, my friend. So this is like two albums in a row where he's ended the album with a kind of a throwaway track. And I don't know how I feel about that. At least on Chaos and Creation, it was a hidden track. Yeah. Here it's, you know, it's a fully listed album track. Yeah, It was released with the Dance Tonight single. I don't need it on the record. I don't know why it's included on the record. It's, it, it's it is what fine. it is. Yeah. So we have some bonus material. There is a Japanese bonus track called Why So Blue. Good song. 
This is amazing. And this is a remake of a version they did for Chaos, which was rejected. And that was a bit faster, recorded with the band. Yeah, I really dig this one. They suggest a highly recommended wine. Once again, the same old line. Clever stuff. Staring from a cardboard castle down and out. One of life's young students finds out what it's all about. Paper flutters, angry taxi drivers shout. From the pages of a paper candle shine On a perfect table laid for two love to dine They suggest a highly recommended one Once again the same old line Why so sad? So this is one that has some familiar subject matter. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of Vanilla Sky or San Fairy Ann mm-hmm. or maybe Mrs. Vanderbilt or even 1882. Where he's talking about a kind of either ultra wealthy or otherwise kind of set apart clueless person. In this case, a person who has everything, I guess, and isn't happy anyway. Is he talking about himself? I don't think so. I don't think he sees himself as as that person. I'm not sure. I mean, of course, but but I think in his world he meets people like that. Oh, he must. They say fame doesn't make you any happier. It just kind of magnifies the things <laughs> that are screwed up about your life. From a dingy attic window candle shine On a perfect table late for two love to dine Now they drink the highly recommended wine I like this song. It could have definitely replaced Dance Tonight. Maybe not in the same track location. I'll leave Dance Tonight on. (laughs) Okay, end of the end. So the songs that I like, you're taking off the record all of a sudden. I was thinking those are the the ones I don't like. You could swap it for You Tell Me, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even notice. I'd rather keep both of those and get rid of, I don't know, how about that was me? What about Feet in the Clouds? <laughs> could get rid of that, yeah. That could be a good B-side. Everybody gonna dance tonight. Everybody gonna feel all right. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. Everybody gonna dance around. Everybody gonna hit the ground. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. There is an iTunes store pre-order bonus track of Dance Tonight as an acoustic version. If you're a completist, check that out. That's very cool, actually. I don't like Dance Tonight, but if I'm going to listen to Dance Tonight, that's going to be the one. Little darling, you can do anything you want to do. Everybody going to stand for feet. 
And so there was a two CD limited edition version of this. The second disc was In Private, Why So Blue, a song called 222, and then Paul talking about Memory Almost Full for about 26 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we've already covered Why So Blue. So In Private, this is a two-minute track. It's pretty quick. And this is just an instrumental. It's one of those instrumentals. One of those. It's got some cool guitar knocking, and it's very well-produced. Very slick and very tight. Just something I've always wondered, like back to Venus and Mars, like Odd Socks, and where he's got these instrumental tracks that are like riffs and instrumental flourishes. Is he thinking that he's going to go back and write a top line? Like, was he going to write a song to this? I mean, what I would gather from all the sources we've looked at over the last few years, he's probably not sure. Mm. He's just pursuing it, seeing what happens, and sometimes he abandons them before they get any any words, or sometimes he just thinks, yeah, this one doesn't need any words. I'm good. Hmm. I wonder what it would be like to pull up all these instrumental tracks and just put them in a playlist and kind of shuffle through it, if there's anything, hmm. anything that's revealed from that. Because I normally just skip these. I'm just like, okay, all right. It reveals how important the top line or a melody or the vocal of a song really is. <laughs> yeah. Well, they sure do come in handy when you're editing a podcast. I'll tell you that. Yes. So after Why So Blue, we have this song 222, which is done in January and February 2007 at Hog Hill, like nearer the end. It's more or less a song based on a bass riff and uh, whispered vocals. Yeah, I kind of dig this one. It's in 7-8, which is nice. You never hear Macca in an odd time signature like that. Not very often, anyway. So it's nice to hear Macca playing in 7. And it's got some cool instruments in it. Nice little ensemble that he put together. You know, I mean, it's all him, but, you know, creates a nice little orchestration for it. I agree. This track has a celeste, flugelhorn, organ, xylophone, vibraphone. Some interesting instruments added on here. Oh, and a clarinet from an unknown musician. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, the title could be a hotel room number. And in my little fantasy world, this song and Come On To Me are the A-side, B-side. The internal thoughts and like the external thoughts of Paul chatting up some girl in the 60s. 
Look at that. Look at her walking, turning my head, taking my breath away. And then during the outro, do you know what he's actually saying? No. Come on to me. No kidding. We don't really need to talk about Paul talking about Memory Almost Full. You can check that out. There's like basically a an addendum. So yeah, outside of those tracks, Chris, you pulled a couple. Yeah, My Soul, which is a bonafide Paul McCartney song. Yes. Yes, it That's is. That's 2008, and it's on an album by Nitin Sani, and the album is called London Undersound. And it's quite a good song. And this is actually Paul really dealing with the Heather Mills thing and the aftermath of it. Hmm. Nowadays, when you get the attention of the paparazzi and you don't want them to take a picture, you don't necessarily even know they're there. It suddenly reminds me of the whole idea that the Africans thought they were stealing your soul. So, yeah, they steal your soul. Soul. I long to know all your secrets I want to walk through your fire Light up my eyes with your smile I was awakened by Yeah, this is one of those tracks where I just heard it. Like, I actually listened to it today for the first time. I do wish the vocal on this weren't quite so rough. I could see the idea, and we've heard it before, that, oh, no, it's very fragile and we want to capture that. But I can kind of hear Paul maybe doing it next week and you know, instead. Come back a week later. Right. again. Right. But they do some really cool things with his voice with the radio filter in the second half of the full-length version. And they do a little ping-ponging back and forth between left and right with the vocal that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm.
I guess we should just say that Nitin Sawney is a producer mainly, but also a composer. And this particular album seems to be him collaborating with and producing guest artists. And Paul's one of them toward the beginning of the album. I poked around a little on the rest of the album and it, it has a few nice tracks. Hmm. Check that out. So Cat Stevens or Youssef. So it's not Youssef Islam anymore. Well, I think at least on the album cover for Road Singer, which is what we're going to be talking about here, it's just Youssef Road Singer. So that's an album that was released May 5th, 2009. And this is a bonus track that was written by Youssef after he was denied entry to the U.S. in 2004. And it features guest appearances by Paul McCartney and Dolly Parton. And so it was recorded in the summer of 2008. What do you think? It's all right. I believe you can hear Paul on the background vocal. I don't know whether he's playing bass. I'm pretty sure he didn't have a hand in writing it. We'll play a little bit of that here. Yeah. I was traveling boots and sand. I bound for miracle land. Met a man called Buckingham. Said, Joe, won't you join our band? Nickel jangled in the jukebox. Bird of Nashville. So we carried on a long, long road To a place where we've been told All your records turn to gold Birthland of rock and roll As we reached the border Seven sheriffs arrived Seven sheriffs turn on so then there is the deluxe edition bonus dvd live at the electric ballroom london that's from june 7th 2007 seven tracks drive my car dance tonight house of wax nod your head only mama knows and then the dance tonight and ever present past music videos those last two so that's pretty fun you want to check that out. We had mentioned the the Amoeba Secret performance. I got a buddy in L.A. who told me he was in Vegas, and he got a call from somebody who knew about the show. He was like hungover somewhere in a <laughs> hot tub <laughs> in Vegas. and was like, hey, man, Paul's playing Amoeba. So he made his way back as fast as possible, and he actually caught it, shook Paul's hand, and he said it was just such a wild performance. I don't know if any of the listeners have ever been to Amoeba, but it's such this amazing record store in Los Angeles that I believe oh, that they're... Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, they're shutting it down, too. Really? Yeah, they're moving it or shutting... I guess the real estate is going to be cost prohibitive. That's sad. I hope they find some way to salvage it. Yeah, me they too. move it somewhere else, maybe. Of course, there are a couple of amoebas still in the Bay Area, one in San Francisco and one in Berkeley. But the one in San Francisco is not as good as the one on Sunset Boulevard. That one's really great. Oh, yeah. The one on Sunset Boulevard is excellent. I used to drive up from San Diego just to go to Amoeba. And the old rule used to be, give yourself four hours in there and bring $400. hundred <laughs> an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is very special. I, every time I go in there, I buy something because there's just... Like, how is this here? How? Remember, I saw a version of Denny Lane's 
Japanese tears there. And it's like, a vinyl. And you're like, what the fuck is this? What is this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I found so many bizarre things there. Yeah. Movies, too. Well, anyway, this is devolving into an Amoeba commercial, but... Go to Amoeba while you still can. And if you're hearing this after it's gone, you screwed up. So this was recorded June 27th, 2007, and it was released November 13th, 2007. Only four songs were on this little disc. Only Mama Knows, Sea Moon, That Was Me, and I saw her standing there. And then on November 16th, 2012, on Paul's website, they released the whole thing called Live in Los Angeles. 14 songs, Drive My Car, Only Mama Knows, Dance Tonight, Sea Moon, That Was Me, Blackbird, Here Today, Back in the USSR, Nod Your Head. Oh, could I be so pissed? (laughs) (laughs) Just making my way. Back in the USSR and then Nod Your Head. Then House of Wax, Get Back, Hey Jude, Lady Madonna. I saw her standing there. So a pretty cool set to see in the middle of a record store in LA. And maybe we'll revisit that in an upcoming episode. Mm -hmm. And then just as an aside... There are a few little titles floating around from this period. Miami Beach, Rain Go Away Song, and I guess something that was copywritten called Soundcheck Jazz Riff. And I guess one of those is in a menu of a DVD, the US DVD. There was like a voiceover, all of that. I, I don't know. I haven't heard any of these, but this was, I'm scraping the barrel here of trying to find information. And that's it. We made it. Memory almost full, and man, is it ever. Seriously. Well, overall, good album. Absolutely. Really good album, great vocal performances, great sets of lyrics. It hangs together as a record. You can spin it, and it feels like an album. It does. Has a great energy to the whole thing. A couple of clams on the you know metaphorical keyboard there, but it's a Paul McCartney yeah. album, so you're always going to get a couple of those. Yeah, some nice Wings throwbacks. Good to see him revisiting some nice old habits. Mm-hmm. And the thing did well. In the U.S., Memory Almost Full, it debuted at number three on the Billboard 200. 161,000 copies sold within the first week, making it Paul's highest charting album since Flaming Pie. 47% of the album sales from the opening week were from the Starbucks coffee shops, obviously. It peaked at number one on the internet sales chart, which I don't even think that exists anymore. Number three on the Billboard top internet album downloads. They've just bundled all those together because of streaming and all that. I mean, this is just a well-received album. Top 10 in a lot of places, top 20, top 40, basically everywhere. Gold in the, in the States, in the UK, in Canada. Does anybody want to hear any press? Press? Oh, <laughs> 
All right, so overall, Memory Almost Full received positive reactions from everybody. Metacritic, because now we're in the Metacritic era where records are actually being reviewed. It was a 69 out of 100 based on 23 reviews. Generally favorable. Stephen Thomas Erlewine, our good friend, I've got a few quotes here. The remarkable thing is that McCartney never sounds self-consciously pretentious here, as if he's striving to make a major statement. Rather, he's quietly taking stock of his life and loves, his work and achievements. Memory Almost Full is so melodic and memorable, it's easy to take for granted his skill as a craftsman, particularly here when it feels so natural and unforced, even when it takes left turns, which thankfully it does more than once. Best of all, this is the rare pop meditation on mortality that doesn't present itself as a major statement. Yet, it is thematically and musically coherent, slowly working its way under your skin and lodging its way into your cluttered memory. On the surface, it's bright and accessible, as easy to enjoy as the best of Paul's solo albums, but it lingers in the heart and mind in a way uncommon to the rest of his work and to many other Latter-day albums from his peers as well. Even-handed review. I always like reading his reviews. Yeah. Chris Willman from Entertainment Weekly says, This is his best record since 1989's Flowers in the Dirt. Memory is beautifully elegiac and surprisingly caffeinated. Hmm. LA Times' is Randy Lewis says, Even as he's about to turn 65, McCartney appears to recognize that the past is a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. The Guardian's Neil Spencer, There's no longer any shame attached to imitating wings. Why? Even Mecca's at it. <laughs> I love that. Pitchfork gave this album a 6.4, which is just so... I thought it would have been 3.4. So Stuart Berman says, Sure, the song's opening salvo, Don't Live in the Past, is a bit rich coming from someone who still makes millions by singing 40-year-old songs in sports arenas. (laughs) But for the two minutes and 21 seconds it takes for vintage clothes to traverse its shape-shifting universe, the sentiment rings true because the song proves that McCartney still knows the difference between just singing about the past and measuring up to it. Pretty cool Pitchfork review, right? Funny. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. People like this album. Well, I have sunny memories of this album. It came out, what was it, early summer? Yep. Yeah, I remember playing it in the car a lot, and this one really made it into my rotation. This wasn't one that I just spun a few times and said, oh, okay, new Paul album, you know, done with that. This one stuck around for a while. It's really hard for me to believe that 10 years have gone by. I remember being in the car, too, just spinning this and driving around and being so happy that, uh, happy, yeah, as dumb as that sounds, was out. It was just like, wow, this is great music. This is fun music to listen to. Good record cover. Cool title. Cool promotional campaign around the whole thing. I couldn't wait for him to release another album. And it, unfortunately, it took him a long time to put one out. Or did it? I mean, another very good album comes out about a year later. So that's the debate, and that's, I guess, what we'll get into. Is that a Paul McCartney album? Well, we'll get into that soon. And in the meantime, I guess we'll go out with a little preview of the next episode. Sounds good to me. All right. Thanks for listening.
Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa. Yeah, you know, it's clean, it's clear. And it's just, I, I don't find it, it's just straightforward. And maybe that's the point. It's all right.